I wanted my kids to know me. I wasn't always there for them, and I wanted them to know why and to understand what I did. Those are the words of Steve Jobs in his biography written by Walter Isaacson. Jobs is an incredible man. He invented the smartphone as we know it. So many of the technological advancements that we enjoy came through his genius and his sheer willpower to get things done. People have been fascinated by Jobs for a lot of reasons. One of them is that he was a very reclusive, almost ascetic sort of person. He would pull back, spend lots of time alone on his own, contemplating and thinking. Uh, that's probably part of the reason why he accomplished some of the things he did. He was alone to think and to plan and to strategize. And yet for as amazing of a man as he was, we need to be honest, he was a failure as a father. He had a biography written so that his living children might have a little sense of who he was before he died. He, he died in 2011 of pancreatic cancer. It wasn't because his kids didn't want to know him. The reason why they didn't know him is because you can only ever know someone who wants to be known. That's true of a celebrity father like Steve Jobs. It's true in our marriages. It's true with siblings. It's true at work. And it's true of our relationship with God. People have been asking the question, how can I know God for as far back as humanity goes? People have been looking to philosophers who trace back the ideal thought of what God might be like and how it is we might have some connection with him. Some have come to the conclusion that God is unknowable. He's the, the watchmaker that sets the watch in motion and backs off and lets it run. Others have come to the conclusion that God is to be found deep within each of us. That If you just search your heart honestly enough and deeply enough, then you'll find God there. Others have looked to God, find God through rituals, through going and bathing in certain rivers, climbing high peaks, doing something to attain this relationship we all crave. What does the Bible say, though? How is it that we as Christians can have any sort of relationship and really know God? The Bible's answer is remarkably simple, refreshingly simple. It's if you want to know God, you need to meet Jesus. That's what we'll see in our passage this morning. If you want to know God, you need to meet Jesus. We'll see that as we look at verses 14 through 18, the end of the introduction to John's gospel. We'll see it in, in three sections. First, we'll see that God is revealed in the humanity of Jesus. That's really the, the first half of verse 14. Second, we'll see that God is revealed in the grace of Jesus. That's the first half of 14 through verse 17. And then finally, we'll see that God is revealed exclusively in Jesus. And that's in verse 18. And all this, we'll see that it's refreshingly simple. If we want to know God, we need to meet the man, Jesus. Let's begin in verse 14. God is revealed in the humanity of Jesus. One of the ways people experience love and acceptance is just by being there. Maybe you've made a long trip somewhere to go to someone's graduation or to their wedding. The fact that you show up usually speaks volumes more so than any words you might say. 
John starts off in verse 14 by telling us, Jesus showed up as one of us. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the the doctrine we call the incarnation, that the eternal word that was introduced at the beginning of the prologue, the God that was with God and in perfect relationship with God, he actually stepped down into his creation and became a human. This is the Christmas story from heaven's point of view. Uh, Matthew and Luke spell out about the Virgin Mary and the angels and the wise men and all that. Uh, John doesn't give us any of that. He tells us from eternity's perspective that the eternal word came into the world and became flesh. The way he writes that became flesh is almost a crass way of writing it. The word came on and took on stuff. I I think he wrote it that way intentionally because there were teachers in his day that denied that Jesus actually came in the flesh. They they taught a, a sort of dualism that the, everything that was fleshly and material was bad and that the spiritual was good. So Jesus clearly could not be fleshly, could not really be human because that would be beneath God. I think John is going out of his way to say, Jesus came and he really was a human. Not only was he a human, it says that he dwelt among us. The word used for that is the word that you would use for setting up a tent. You could say pitched his tent. Another way uh, that it's used in the Old Testament translation, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is uh, it's what's used for the tabernacle in Israel's history. You know, they would wander around the desert, and God told them to make for him a, a glorified tent with some really fancy furniture. Uh, He told them the exact specifications it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be this long, this wide. There were were drapes and uh, fine linens, everything beautifully adorned with gold and artwork. There was some boxes, some furniture that he made. He he set up courts. Uh, There was an outer court. You couldn't go past that unless you were a certain type of person. And then an inner court, you couldn't go past that without certain sacrifices. And then the inner, inner court, the Holy of Holies, Only Moses and later the high priest could go in there. God taught Israel so much through the tabernacle that we need to realize what John is saying here. Through the tabernacle, God taught Israel of his otherness. He's not just a God you can waltz up and meet on your own terms. He taught them about his holiness that you must have your sins cleansed before you can come and worship this God. He taught us of his hiddenness, that not just anyone can look and see God, that there are barriers between us and him. And yet it also taught us of his condescension, that God had set up a meeting place that you could actually meet him if you were the right person or your representative was sent in like Moses. You could truly speak to God. John tells us that the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, freighted with meaning. He's saying Jesus really came as a person and lived with us so we could meet God. He also tells us that there was proof that he was God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
back with the tabernacle, there was a, a moment where God showed definitively that this was where he would take up residence. In a special way, God was here, that he's not present everywhere else in the world. It is true God is present everywhere. And yet, it's also true that there are some places that God has chosen to reveal himself as present in a different way, and the tabernacle was one of them. If you have your Bible, flip open to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus 40 and verse 34. Right at the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Exodus 40 in verse 34. This is the moment where God has given them instructions for this tabernacle. And he's now going to show once and for all proof that this is where he lives. Starting in verse 34 of chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In this moment, the, the cloud of glory, the Shekinah, is the Hebrew for it, it, it came down. It represents God's presence, this glowing cloud of some sort. And it was so intense that Moses himself could not enter into God's house. John takes this language and he says, Jesus, Jesus, we saw his glory. Now John is going to tease out what it means that he saw Jesus' glory. I don't think it means that Jesus was walking around ancient Palestine glowing like a light bulb. Just a little ahead in chapter 2 of John, uh, we're going to see a very uh, famous uh, Bible story, the Jesus turning the water to wine at the wedding. And at the end of that miracle, John says this in verse 11. He says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what is the glory that John is talking about? Well, he's talking about Everything that the disciples, John's peers, that they saw as they walked and talked with Jesus. All the miracles he did, certainly. All the teaching he gave. But ultimately, the greatest manifestation of glory ever is the cross of Jesus. In John 13, Jesus said of this, Now the Son of Man will be glorified and his Father with him. Speaking of that dark day, on the hill of Golgotha, when the Son of Man, the, the very author of life, would be killed on behalf of sinners. The glory of God is seen in the cross of Jesus. And John and his fellow disciples were witnesses to it. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're checking out the Bible. Uh, you're checking out Christianity. You're curious about this thing that so many people have spent so much time thinking about and trying to live in light of. And let me just encourage you, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you feel welcome. But I don't want you to leave without thinking about the implication of what it is that John just wrote here. This isn't just a, a philosophical concept. This isn't just some deep, mysterious spirituality. John is claiming that something is historically true. 
And if it's true, it changes everything about the way we relate to God. See, as Christians, what we believe is that God has graciously shown himself to us so that we can have the thing we need most, a relationship with him. John tells us that the only way that we can have that relationship is through Jesus. If you've got questions about what that means, well, let me just invite you to keep reading John's gospel with us here on Sundays, or if you don't have a Bible, I'll be glad to give you one afterward. If not, just ask a good Christian friend. They would love to be asked, how is it that you know that Jesus is the way I can know God? Well, John clearly lays out the first half of verse 14 that the humanity of Jesus, him coming as a person, is one of the ways that God has revealed himself. But humanity alone isn't enough to save anybody, is it? None of us are up to the task of being savior for the world, which is what makes John's second point so important. God revealed himself, not just in the humanity of Jesus, but in the grace of Jesus. That's what we see the second half of 14 through verse 17. He says, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We'll come back to that phrase, glory of the only son from the father later. Right now I want us to focus on that phrase, full of grace and truth. John gives us two attributes, twins, to describe what Jesus is like that show us the grace we have received. Now, grace is a beloved doctrine of Christians. We sing rightly that beloved song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Grace is beloved because it shows us just how much we needed what God gave us, that we received as a gift, totally unmerited, from God, everything needed for salvation and a relationship with him. Shorthand way, a shorthand way of describing grace is it's that unmerited gift that God gives us. God giving us something we don't deserve. So thankful that John says here that Jesus is full of grace. What he means by that is he has an inexhaustible supply of it. He never runs out. Now, my family uh, has been guilty at times growing up of not being the best neighbors when it came to Halloween. Uh, we had a little bit of an excuse. We grew up in a church that kind of discouraged the idea of Halloween, as some Christians do, which is fine. Um, but we, we weren't wholehearted about it. Like, we, we kind of dipped one toe into the no Halloween waters. Um, so we would, instead of just not giving out candy, we would just give out very little candy or terrible candy um, and so as you might imagine we got a bit of a reputation people did not like our household we got some eggs thrown some toilet paper stuff like that one year in particular uh, I remember my mom came home and she had a, a bag of these chocolates that she liked and it was like a 20 count now we lived in a neighborhood with lots of young families like that was gone within 10 minutes and what do you do for the rest of the night there is nothing sugary anywhere in the house uh, so we tried to turn off the lights and pretend like we weren't there, and uh, we, got, we got egged that year. It was, it was not good. You know, I think we all know what it's like to run out of something. You run out of patience. God forbid you run out of gas on the highway. In some sense, all of us have finite supplies in every area of life. 
It's a little hard to get your head around the idea that Jesus has an inexhaustible supply of grace and truth. Martin Luther tried to get his head around it. He's described it this way. He says, the spring is an inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything, no matter how much we draw, but remains an infinite fountain of grace and truth. The more you draw from it, the more abundantly it gives the water that springs into eternal life. Oh, what good news it is that Jesus is full of grace. Because it means when we come to him in our time of need, we will never hear, sorry, I'm out. He has grace sufficient for every sorrow, grace sufficient for all types of sinners, that he dispenses freely to any that come and ask. Paired with that is that he is full of truth. When John talks about truth, he's surely talking about everything revealed about Jesus in his gospel, everything that the whole Bible speaks of him. You might say it this way, it's real information about God and how he relates to his creation. It's how things actually are. Jesus will later in John 14 say that he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. John here attributes everything that is true, all knowledge of truth, to Jesus. I love the fact that Jesus, when he prays for us, right near the end of John's gospel, he prays that the Father would sanctify us in his truth, and then he tells us, your word is truth. In other words, Jesus shows us what is actually true real about God and he's always got something new to show us we see from the next verses that come after that the way that God has unfolded this truth to us through Jesus it's what we call progressive revelation it doesn't happen all at once Uh, so in verse 15 we have another verse about John uh, John the Baptist so John bore witness about him and cried out This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, next week we're going to spend a lot of time on John, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this verse, but I just want to point out that John stood in a line of prophets. These were men speaking for God and in a sense speaking truth, and yet John's truth was not the ultimate revelation of God. It was partial. All the prophets that came before him, the same could be said. They revealed true things about God real truth, and yet they were not the truth. They were not full of truth the way Jesus was. They were partial. You can think of it this way. Maybe along the way, you, in school, you learned lots about mathematics. The things you learned in second grade about math were very, are true principles, and yet they're not the whole story, are they? Later on, you, maybe you took algebra or physics or some higher orders of math. They are built upon the initial knowledge that you gained. It's a little bit like the way that God has unfolded his revelation to us. When we read the Old Testament, we read accurately. This is how God has acted in the world. This is how he's treated his people. We learn things about God. And yet until the coming of Jesus and the incarnation, we never knew God this way. Something new was revealed. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid to admit that 
and different eras, God has revealed himself in greater ways. Uh, the, the doctrine of uh, progressive revelation is an important one to understand the whole Bible. That's certainly true of John the Baptist and the prophets. It's also true when you think of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system and Moses. Verses 16 through 17 have to do with that. He said, for, uh, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That phrase, grace upon grace, is better translated as grace replacing grace. If your Bible has footnotes, it probably has that as an alternate translation there. If you have doubt that that's what it's about, verse 17 clears up what he's talking about. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What John is saying here is that while the truth of God that was revealed in the Old Testament sacrificial system and the tabernacle and everything that Moses and the prophets spoke was true, it ultimately has been surpassed by the revelation that Jesus brought with him. The things that Moses taught us, the law, the need for cleansing, the need for a mediator, those are all true. And yet, they were a shadow of the reality that is Jesus. Do you realize what a privilege it is to live on this side of the cross? There will be people in heaven that we will swap stories with and share fellowship with that would have killed for the opportunity to see all the promises of God in flesh the way we do. It should be something that brings us tremendous joy to ponder. The fact that Jesus is full of grace and truth is especially important for us as we live in a modern age that is in such short supply of both. Let's be frank, there is no shortage of evil and pain to apply the grace of Jesus to today, isn't there? We carry burdens that sometimes we can't even bring ourselves to tell others about. We can have people's names dragged through the mud. There's no guarantee in this life we will see satisfying final justice done. And yet Jesus is full of grace. We can come to him when we are most wounded. We can come to him when we have failed and when all the things said about us are true and worse. And we can find the gift of God, forgiveness, healing, and a right relationship with God restored. Jesus is also full of truth. That's so, so important. It's, it's the foundation for why we Christians should be most interested with truth. We don't believe something, we don't have a faith that is just a, a matter of personal opinion or unknowable spirituality. Our faith rests on the reality that Jesus came as a historical person that actually lived 2,000 years ago, that he actually relieved, revealed things about God that are true. Now, it's unfashionable to believe those things, to, to say that this definitively is true, then by implication, other things are false. And yet, if we're going to say that Jesus is full of grace and truth, friends, we have no alternative. The implications from this are staggering. We, we don't have room to lie about anyone for any reason. 
We don't have room to settle for things that we would like to be true, but we can't actually verify. We have to be seekers of truth, no matter what the scenario we're in, trusting that the God of all truth, our Savior, will judge rightly. It's a tough day to be a Christian. What good news it is that Jesus is full of grace and truth. We can trust that he's really revealed God to us. And we can trust that he can take us in the, the worst pit of despair and lift us out and bring us up to God's very throne. Now, it's all great what John says about Jesus, but maybe you're wondering, the common question that is often asked is, well, can't I find truth in other religions? Can't, can't there be many different spiritualities that tell us some truth of God? I was just on a, a plane on the way back from, uh, from Amsterdam, and I sat next to a guy who asked me that very thing. He asked if, how, do I, uh, how is it that I could be so sure and that his wife's Hinduism was not an uh, equally valid way of interacting with God? Well, John shows us that in verse 18 that God has revealed himself exclusively in Jesus. This is really the main point of the whole prologue of John. It's a thing that he's been driving toward. It's a thing really the whole book is built on. That Jesus has truly revealed God in a way no one else can. See, the problem is stated for us right there at the beginning of verse 18. No one has ever seen God. God. If you're not familiar with the Babylon Bee, you should be. Um, the Babylon Bee is a satirical website, so everything they publish is transparently false, um, but it's meant to, to get a laugh. And uh, it's particularly, it's getting a laugh uh, about Christian subculture. So they have a lot of jokes about Chick-fil-A and Tim Tebow and stuff like that. Um, every once in a while, their writing is just spot on. Uh, I came across one, and the headline was this. It said, uh, worship song repeatedly asks God to show his glory, thousands dead. <laughs> Just a, a brief excerpt from it. In a stunning tragedy, thousands perished instantly as Current's Church, Current's Church, after the Lord granted worship leader Bruce Hacksaw Henry's repeated request to show the fullness of his glory on Sunday morning. Show us your glory, show us your glory. Now, that's a good joke. I appreciate it. But it's built on a biblical principle that God's unmediated glory, that seeing God face to face is not something a sinner ever wants to see. Back, if you remember back to Moses, a man who did such great things for God, a man who God used to bring low the highest king of his day, Pharaoh, saw miracles done by him. He turned the Nile to blood and led them across the, the Red Sea. And at a pivotal mo moment, God, Moses asked God, let me see your face. And you remember what God tells him? He says, Moses, no one can see my face and live. And so he gives him the next best thing. He says, Moses, there's a, a hole in that rock. Go hide behind it. I'll put the rock over you. And I'll 
kind of stroll by and you'll see kind of my back, my, my afterglow as I go by. And that encounter was so powerful that Moses' face shone and the people couldn't bear to look at him. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. He is not one that a sinner can just waltz up and worship. See, the problem why we can't know God on our own terms is none of us can actually go up to heaven and see him and live to tell the tale, which what makes Jesus uniquely able to show us who God's like. It says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We have here descriptions of Jesus as having a unique place. Back in verse 15, he was described, uh, 14, he was described as the only son from the Father. That is the unique son. It's like Isaac was Abraham's unique firstborn son, the inheritor of his promise. Jesus is the unique son of God, even as we are all God's children. Jesus has a unique place that no one else will have because he is the only God that was at the Father's side. He's the only one that pre-existed creation and ever beheld his Father's face in glory. John here tells us, Jesus can reveal God to us because he was there with him from eternity past. Not only that, we're told that he's made God knowable. He says uh, he was at the Father's side. He has made him known. That phrase, made him known, uh, it's where we get the word for exegesis. Maybe you heard that about studying the Bible. We want to exegete the Bible, that is to unearth from within the meaning that is there. We, we want to understand it, to have it explained to us. John here tells us that Jesus explained the Father to us. You see, friend, if, if you want to know what God is like, you have to meet Jesus. Because of the coming of Jesus as a human 2,000 years ago in the backwoods of Palestine, God came and took on flesh he got his own human eyes so you could look him in the eye. So that God could really tell us what he's like in a way that he never had before. That no one else could possibly touch. Jesus shows us God. Brothers and sisters, that should be a tremendous source of joy for us. Even in the midst of the hard, hard things of life. The fact that God has shown himself to you should mean every time you go read the Bible, you're actually gearing up for the encounter with the King of Kings. I mean, John's gospel is written to teach you about Jesus. As you learn about Jesus, you learn about God in every way, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that means each time we open the scriptures, whether together or whether you are by yourself, friend, that is a divine encounter as God's word speaks to you. It's the words of Jesus. It should change the way we evangelize, shouldn't it? You want to talk about good news to bring people? How about the fact that they can actually know God? Uh, even as interest in organized religion has been waning, people's interest in spirituality is off the charts. If you ask someone, hey, are, are you interested in talking about how it is we can know God? Quite a few people will be interested in that conversation. We should be 
unbelievably joyful as we enter into that conversation because we know we have something everyone needs. We have the way to know God through Jesus. Or what about when you're lonely? When you feel like no one is making time for you? Maybe those closest to you have let you down? What about when you feel like you're the only one in the office that lives the way you do or thinks the way you do? The fact that you can know God through Jesus should be a wellspring of joy within you that never goes dry. No one else may truly get you. You may not feel like you are intimate with anyone else in this sort of deep emotional way, and yet you can be that sort of intimate with God himself through Jesus. Steve Jobs was an incredible man. Uh, You might accuse me of being uh, unfair with the way I characterized him and his children um, based on that one quote I gave you. But in August of this year, his daughter wrote an article in Vanity Fair about him. This is a Lisa Brennan Jobs. And in it, she reveals her longing to know her father. She says, for a long time, I hoped that if I played one role, my father would take the corresponding role. I would be the beloved daughter. He would be the indulgent father. I decided if I acted like other daughters did, he would join in the lark. We pretend together. And in pretending, we'd make it real. If I had observed him as he was or admitted to myself what I saw, I would have known that he would not do this and that the game of pretend would disgust him. It's heartbreaking to think about the reality that many people in this world never truly know their parents, that many people in this world never never truly, deep down, in that sort of intimate, emotional way, know their own spouses. And yet, friends, we can know God. Just meet Jesus. Let's pray.